everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's very special guest on Attendance Bias is Fish Lyricist and co-founder of Osiris Media, Tom Marshall. Tom chose to discuss the 35-minute version of David Bowie from December 29, 1994, at the Providence Civic Center in Providence, Rhode Island. Most of us know Tom for his lyrics, and there's plenty of information out there about Tom as a lyricist. He's been very open about his relationship with Fish, his lyrics, and more on his former podcast, Under the Scales. Under the Scales has now morphed into a new podcast called Undermine, but we'll get to that later. We'll let Tom tell the story. But since Tom has already said plenty about his lyrics, I wanted to hear more about him and his life and history as a podcaster. I wanted to hear about Under the Scales, I wanted to hear about Undermine and Osiris Media. And then, of course, I wanted to hear his thoughts about that incredible all-time version of David Bowie. As a huge Fish fan, like all of you, it was a thrill to speak with Tom. But as a podcaster, it was fascinating to hear about the stories behind the scenes and the history of his success. I'm an unabashed fan of Under the Scales, of Undermine, and plenty of other Osiris Media podcasts, including Female Centrics, whose host, Donnie B, was a guest on an early episode of Attendance Bias. So as a result, I had a natural curiosity to hear about his podcasting background. So let's join Tom Marshall to talk podcasting, to talk Undermine, Osiris Media, and David Bowie from December 29th, 1994 at the Providence Civic Center. Tom Marshall, thank you for being here. Welcome to Attendance Bias. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm uh, proud to be on another fish podcast, a non-Osiris fish podcast for a change. Yeah, we're the uh, we're the indie, uh, the indie fish podcast group. We try to uh, we try to keep it real up in here, not you corporates, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we were we were indie uh, just a few years ago, so uh, I know I know the feeling. I know what it's like. Congrats. Thank you very much. I'm actually really interested to talk to you about that, about how your podcast life has not just begun, but grown and succeeded and expanded, especially recently. At the time of this recording, just a couple of days ago, you guys announced, Osiris Media did, a whole slew of new shows that sound really exciting. So not only are you succeeding, but it sounds like you're thriving. Uh, Well, yes, we are. Uh, Osiris has just done a, like, as you said, we've kind of had a spate of announcements of different genres and different shows. Our first fiction podcast was announced all with the music through line though. We're staying true to that. Yeah. We're really, really excited. And I'd also like to thank you for being one of Osiris's biggest fans online. You had me right away. Uh, I mean, and of course the fish connection is what drew me in initially. I was a big fan of under the scales before Osiris formed as a as a host. But I think that as a a media podcast hosting company that you do an excellent job keeping that vibe. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's better unnamed that everything kind of has that flavor while still serving different niche audiences. I yeah, I think you're right. I think um, specific podcasts can be very, very niche and still be relevant and widely listened to. Like if you made a podcast about the car, the Mustang, that would be too broad. You'd have to make yeah. it about the 69 Mustang for anyone to actually listen to it. So so even though we seem like we're sort of have little pigeonholes, it's not. That's that's the way people want to choose and listen to podcasts. Yeah, I think that's the nature of the medium. 
And speaking of the different podcasts under Osiris Media, would it be fair to suggest that Undermine is your flagship podcast? Um, it's sort of, yeah, we, we kind of backed into that in a, in a way. I, I think that some of the people that we're talking to now, and I'm not positive if the one that I'm thinking of has been fully announced yet, but I believe we're about to take on someone that will essentially match or eclipse Undermine listenership. Oh, wow. But yes, uh, Undermine, as a result of being kind of three successful fish podcasts, uh, had some big listenership comparably to others. However, some of our, you know, we got Eric Krasno doing really well, Alex Skolnick doing really well. Atiel Burbridge, yeah. Yes, yep, they're doing very, very well. Speaking of doing very well, season one of Undermine recently concluded. What did you think? Ha. Well, uh, I'll tell you, we, we kind of have had taken a bit of a gamble by combining three successful fish pods into one, but the result turned out to be bigger than the individual parts. And uh, I personally learned a lot actually about fish in the 80s, even though I'm the only one on our team who saw fish in the 80s. There's a lot I didn't know. And the cool way that we found out this information was through interviewing really cool people like Amy Skelton. Mm -hmm. You know, she was just a Vermont new student at University of Vermont and happened to latch up with John Fishman as her first best friend and him hers, her his. And uh, she became what she calls the first fish fan and because she was at every single thing musically that John did. And then just hearing her talk about the, you know, meeting Trey when he met Trey the first time and the magic, because I knew the magic from Trey meeting John side of things. And so, uh, yeah, I knew exactly what she was talking about. And yet there was lots of uncovered gems, how she got New Hampshire pals into the, the stuff and how she was a huge tape trader and promoter of fish. Uh, also like talking to Jeff Holdsworth, the other fish guitarist. He was, you know, his, his life is in incredible to me. And I don't think anyone knew anything about him really what happened after fish to him. I also learned about the shows at the ranch, which b became really important in fish's history and the people that lived there. Page lived there and the other Burlington band, uh, the Joneses lived there too. Anyway, as far as uh, Undermine wrapping up, it was I was more than pleased with the reaction we got. We got a lot of fish fans who they're pretty lively about commenting on the episodes on social media. And I think they seem happy with the content for the most part. I mean, it's good that we have a little controversy and people, you know, not everyone like completely happy about everything, but we're weekly, right? So there's a lot more content coming at you. And then for me personally, the biggest change, and then I'll shut up, was that I'm no longer a one-man show. Well, yeah, I'm curious about that part of it, especially the one-man show, because in fall of 2016, that's when you launched Under the Scales. And if we could time travel back to 2016, as a lyricist, as a writer, what inspired you to host a podcast? Are you a, a storyteller by nature or was it you kind of saw it as another medium for you to get a message out there? What was it the moment that you had or was it more gradual than that? Maybe it was like I saw an opportunity kind of possibly. So it, I really started my podcasting as a listener. And the first podcast I got into was Analyze Fish with uh, Scott Ackerman and Harris Whittles. So Harris, of course, was a parks and recreation writer and actor, and he had a fish shirt like this. I don't know if you can tell I have a fish shirt on. And uh, Scott Ackerman, of course, is the comedy Bang Bang, also a brilliant comedian. And so when that ended, it left a hole that a couple people, 
that simultaneously kind of convinced me that I, I could fill. And I decided to make an attempt at it. And uh, of course, I don't have comedy chops. So my, my show had a completely different motive. I don't know. I've heard you on stage a few times. Don't don't short yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up with the guys on stage. Fish and I'm convinced all four of them could have been comedians. I've heard that actually on uh, on Undermine. That's mentioned quite a bit. That it's this very layered internal joke since day one. They are hilarious, and it's dangerous being the only person on the bus with them because then all their sights turn on you. Yeah, right. Because now they're a team and you're the outsider. Exactly. You're the new meat, fresh meat. Yeah. And so I was listening to Under the Scales since since it aired right away. I looked back in preparation of this interview because I loved all the different episodes. My favorite was the uh, the story of the ghost when you had Trey tell stories over the phone. It seems like the first few episodes was something of a um, of a grab bag of topics where you would tell stories about your songwriting weekends with Trey uh, and you would have general episodes with RJ about like the fish experience where the two of you looked into the taping culture. And then you would interview guys like Dave Steinberg or Zizix, more likely people know him or the dude of life. But by the end, a few months ago, it seemed like a lot more focused. I think that the, uh, the, Lyric breakdowns that you did about two versions of me. That was one of my favorite episodes. You did one with Chalk Dust Torture, uh, Evening Song. And then the big, the big one that I have a feeling is what helped you make the jump to Undermine is when you collaborated with other podcasts about focusing on Fall 2000 for Fish. That evolution, that growth, kind of, then kind of uh, converging or focusing on something more specific, was that intentional or was it just evolution of the the show i think there's a lot of questions in there but you mentioned you you mentioned intention and i'll say the intention always of under the scales was to bring the listener under the scales closer to the beating heart of the fish to where maybe unseen and unspoken things about fish could be revealed and examined and uh you gave me a back door, which I'll take, which is the show really just evolved. <laughs> um, it went through stages of structure. I mean, I, I remember the first year I did the first three Mondays of every month. I did 36 episodes. And then I went into an unstructured year with an episode whenever it came out. And um, then recently I was doing two per month again. And I was starting to get some support from... Uh, the rest of Osiris. And that clicked with me like, you know what, this is actually the sum of all of us could get together. And it wasn't only my idea. I'm taking credit for it in this way. But um, all of a sudden, we all sort of, I think, realized that that maybe we should try combining some of these. And it was fabulous. I loved that examination of the fall 2000 tour. I only saw one show, I think, on that tour uh, very early in Darien Lake. But it was I, I loved the the multifaceted nature of that uh, collaboration. And you just brought up Osiris in 2018, which was two years after Under the Scales. That's when you launched Osiris Media as a co-founder with RJB. I can't imagine the switch of responsibility from being a podcast host to founding or co-founding a media platform. What was the inspiration for that? Oh, wow. Well, 
It's definitely different and it's difficult. Um, difficult, the word difficult comes up a lot when you think about a startup, you know, a startup company. And, uh, that's why we have to talk about RJB, my co-founder, because he had a fish podcast, helping friendly pod and mine was under the scales. And we've always sort of been in conjunction. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of the decision to create a company, well, I mean, there's no easy way to create a successful company. That's like, that's the big barrier to entry. And it's why everyone doesn't form a com company. Right. No matter what you're selling. Exactly. Like being your own boss is alluring. It's awesome. But the risks and the responsibilities are, are totally off the charts. So, so why did we actually do it? Well, RJ and I began noticing that, that some of the problems and issues um, that we solved with our two podcasts could also apply to other podcasts. And some of our friends had podcasts and we knew other people and we got approached by people with podcasts. So while making our listening pool larger, you know, benefits of that are cross marketing and possibly advertising. So we started really as a web page with a bunch of music pods and uh, we gradually built a structure around that. And I visited the web page. Your slogan says the leading storyteller in music is that your goal to kind of become the go-to source for music lovers who enjoy podcasts? Yeah. I mean, that's one of our taglines. I mean, seriously, Osiris is about connecting you to the music you love. And we feel that telling the story of a band or telling the story, telling a story, you know, with music in it, it's a way we all know how to listen and, and can get closer to the music. Live experiences are also an area that we're lucky to be able to start focusing on again, possibly tell some of those stories from the stage. What do you mean by that? What live experiences? Um, so we, you know, before COVID, we had a cool thing with Goose, for example. Goose was, well, I, I can't say they were, they were, you know, they weren't as well known as they are now. And I didn't know any of their music. And I sort of did a listening uh, deep dive into them and, and started loving them, their their music, about a week before RJ and I sat on stage with them. Uh, the two guys, uh, Rick and Peter, and they also had a bassist friend, a stand-up upright bassist guy. And so we talked with them, then they played some songs, then we talked and played songs, and it was really, really cool. So it was kind of like podcast plus music. Uh, and we have some other ideas. We have something called Jam Just Happened, which is uh, Scott Metzger got together some, uh, you know, unlikely, possibly bandmate combination of musicians and just jammed with no practice. And that became a podcast. And that happened right before COVID. We had to cancel the second one of those because of COVID. So we're looking and we're eyeing carefully, like which of those had good reactions. And then there's another probably 10 things that I'm leaving out right now that we're also thinking of. That's so fun, though. I guess part of the potential of having so many collaborations is if you have an idea, well, let's call everyone in and you can make it happen. I mean, that sounds like a dream to have if maybe a super group or however you want to describe it, you know, and just say, all right, jam from nothing. And now let's talk about it because we have all the resources needed and we know there's an audience for it too. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing how well they did with a very minimal structure. And I was thinking going forward, depending on the personalities, how would that work? And I think just examining that, that question uh, would be fascinating. But, you know, it would be something that would be, 
you'd have to be patient and, and watch it evolve. But I think, you know, that in my mind would focus around one guy that would focus around Scott because he, he was the, he was kind of going to be the pillar. Um, he's kind of busy now. So we're, we've, we've also taken that concept into different directions as well. So let's talk a little bit about Undermine. The most recent season, season one ended late, uh, recently. And the way I saw it is that almost like it was a Ken Burns style of storytelling um, in the audio way that it tells the fish story chronologically, right? You're starting in the eighties with season one. And I assume season two will go maybe if not the full nineties as a decade, but we'll hear more from you on that, but it tells the fish story chronologically, but it's not really a linear narrative. You know, like I saw it as this like 3d almost cubist way of telling the story including examinations of Fish's musical origins, the experiential aspect of being there in the early days, how they form it and how they grew the context. This is so much. Whenever I watch like Ken Burns baseball, it's like, there's so much information here. It's you're like paralyzed. How are you able to organize so much information and so many facets of a story into such a digestible way to listen? I give the credit. We, we have a really awesome team made up of people who love fish. And so everything that we wanted to know and to explore, we figured that fans would also want to know and explore with us. So, you know, we see it as a journey that we're taking with the fish community. You know what I mean? And it's like chronological made sense in one way and didn't necessarily because we'd interview people along the way and they had something to talk about early and we we're like, well, we already, you know, soon we realized we are kind of painting, like you said, like a collage, I guess, of the 80s. We're learning a lot about about uh, fish and learning a lot about the fans. And so, like I said before, when you were saying, how, what did you learn about, about, you know, doing Undermine the first season? Uh, a lot of this is focused on the community and and as a result next season is actually going to be even more of a journey with the community and really about the community. I'm so excited for it because what, what your podcast did for me as a fan, I have spent a lot of my formative fish years when I was like 13, 14, 15 reading as much as I could, right? This is before, not before the internet, but before everything ever about fish that they ever, every squeak that their sneakers made was recorded online. I would read these books like the fish compendium by Dean Budnick and the farmer's almanac, whichever was the most recent, uh, the most recent issue. And a lot of this lived in my mind's eye, you know, who this Jeff Holds- Holdsworth guy was Amy Skelton as the first fan that you mentioned earlier, but what your podcast did for me, if, if those books were the skeleton of my knowledge, this was the flesh and the muscle. It really made it real to me in a way that reading about it didn't. That's really nice of you to say. And every single person from our point of view, mine included, we all learned similar to you. We, we learned so much about, about fish in the eighties. And I think, you know, they sometimes say the best way to learn something is to teach it, you know, cause you have to know so much about it. We learned a ton and, uh, I was, uh, you know, I kept thinking, well, I know, you know, I know about fish. They played nectars and they played hunts and they played the front and, and, you know, next, what else is there? And man, they, there's so much, so much that we uncovered. And so, you know, the band, 
they're 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 very complex, and you can draw back some of that complexity to these early origins. And it was a beautiful connection that we all made. And you mentioned about you know seeing fish in the '80s and how season one covers that part. What is the rough timeline that fans can expect to be covered in season two? Well, so if you're like, at liberty to say, <laughs> like fish. We're going to keep fans on their toes. Okay. <laughs> so it won't be chronological, but it will be a deep dive into the fish community across time and space. Fair enough. Last question I want to ask you about this is, was there anything you learned? You know, I'm a teacher, a middle school teacher. So I'm always asking my students at the end of a unit, okay, like trying to assess what we've learned. And not only that, but how can we apply it? to future information or future assignments or challenges. So is there anything that you learned from producing season one of Undermine that you found valuable as you produce season two? Yeah. Well, for me, you could almost sum it up by saying working on a team because I, like I said, I had done this by myself, but you know, this is the first time we had a writing team too. So the process of, the interviews and then transcribing the interviews, reading those interviews, forming that into a tellable narrative, writing the connective tissue, recording that, recording voiceovers, editing, you know, feedback from the team, mixing again, more feedback, finalizing, marketing it. So it, we, we learned so, so much. So, you know, we basically merged three separate businesses into a new one and we had to get used to how everyone worked together and how we got the episodes from start to finish. So that's what we learned. And now we kind of know that. Now we're armed with that knowledge and we hope to really have a successful season two. And here I am using Zoom and Twitter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's fine, man. It's like, you, 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 this is how you started, right? Yeah, uh, this is how I've started and continued. And <laughs> And we'll see for the future. Yep. Yep. I bet you'll change. I'm not saying change because you have to. I'm just saying you'll change because change is inevitable. So today's jam that you selected, David Bowie from December 29th, 1994. This show was played on the second night of a four-night New Year's Eve run. And unlike modern New Year's Eve runs where it's like four nights at MSG or possibly Miami, the 94 New Year's Eve run was four shows in four different venues, the Civic Center in Philly, today's show at Providence, the famous debut at Madison Square Garden on the 30th, and New Year's Eve at Boston Garden. Did you go to all four shows on this run? I did. I did. Yeah, I was starting to to really up my fish game. So anything, you know, I had young kids and I had a, a family and it was kind of hard to get away, but sort of anything was on the table that was in New England. So I was able to go to all these, which was which was really lucky, and it was really great. And I was so happy to have gone to that, you know, that first New Year's, all that stuff. It was amazing. I'm sure it was. With all of the possible jams or shows that you could have picked in your extensive, I don't know if career is correct, but in your experience of seeing Fish Live and your connection to them, when we were going back and forth messaging and I kind of give you the concept of all the data you have in your brain. Why do you have a tendency bias toward this David Bowie? Why did you pick it? <laughs> um, okay. Well, I have to give credit to RJ. Okay. So this is his favorite jam, and he really turned me, re-turned me on to it. 
um, even though I was there, it probably just like washed over me because all the shows were like this, you know, they're just simply amazing. And listening to this particular jam brings me back, like really brings me back. You know, the, the long jams where the band goes from one groove to another and when they're in one groove and then someone will begin to change something and then that signals the others to listen and to begin to change. And sometimes it takes a while and there's some experimentation before they all lock into another crazy groove. And the audience, meanwhile, is completely locked in with them. But the band in this area is in this era uh, is so confident and sure of their own playing and so good at listening to each other that it seems effortless, even when they're in that those connective parts, like like even those are interesting and, and incredible. And it it seems like they're doing something that I've never, ever heard another band do like this at all. People sometimes tell me good jazz is exactly like this, but I got to say, I'm not that into jazz because, <laughs> because maybe I haven't found that to be the case. Fish might be my jazz, I guess. I think that might be true for a lot of people. I think the <laughs> word exactly has to be used in a very loose way to yeah. say that this is exactly like jazz. I, I think maybe the intention is exactly like listen to each other and adapt and change. And yet the result, of course, you know, because you're all plugged in and electric, it's different. But, but you know, and, and then and then the jokes back then, like in 94, they were still talking to the audience and doing crazy, crazy stuff that you don't see that much. You, you see a little but but back then they were they were they were more willing to kind of go off the deep end and and the funny thing like the Lassie part we'll probably hear pretty soon um it's funny that Trey doesn't know that Lassie was a girl he says like he a boy oh. and and good boy and it's like Lassie means girl you know right <laughs> so that, so that's hilarious but i totally get it it's because he's he's just improvising so completely that he's not even processing what's coming out of him he's just generating it like translating it from the universe to us and the rest of the band too they're they're masters of listening to each other and adapting in the moment on stage like magic and right jam, that, jams like this are what makes fish fish i would agree the this is all the stuff you said made real this song kind of it encapsulates a lot of what was great about 1994 in one 30-minute long track. Just like in Halloween 95, they played like a 40-minute You Enjoy Myself. That, to me, was all of 1995 in one jam. Yep. And this kind of reminded me of it. So this Bowie begins, unlike any Bowie I've ever heard previously, it starts with a digital delay loop jam, which is very cool, and it's weirdly melodic at the same time it's like good machine music i guess like and what it what it made me think is this is the sort of thing where you could tell that trey put a lot of practice and took his gear very very seriously i know he still does but this is, seems like the thing that you practice in your bedroom for hours and hours and then you're like so proud to present it to a crowd <laughs> Thank you. 
you're exactly right, Trey. So this is like his new boomerang pedal that he, um, you know, the second he got, he did exactly what you said. He just brought it with him. So it was like his guitar, his chord, a small amp, and the boomerang were everywhere with him, everywhere he went. And he just learned every single aspect about it. And uh, he got very good at it until, until, like you said, he got good enough that he thought, hey, maybe I'll try some of that, that looping stuff on stage. And this is the result. And it's a very cool way to start Bowie. And it's really cool hearing the band sort of play along with it, even though the loop is going faster than the band, which is crazy that Fishman can play the correct Bowie tempo, even though a faster thing is going on in his head. And yet it somehow works and it's phenomenal. And that's a running theme throughout this whole thing. Fishman's ability to keep tempo at ridiculous speeds and also ridiculously low volumes. And I've played the drums. You know, I, I wouldn't call myself a drummer anymore, but uh, a recovering drummer. And it's I think it's our instinct as people, especially drummers, to play louder as you get faster. But Fishman is just like, no, I am going to keep this amazing tempo no matter how loud or soft we're playing. It's very, it's incredibly impressive. And Bowie itself, the song that we all know it, doesn't really start until like three minutes in. Right. And, and what a great Bowie. What the, the version, you know, once that amazing in, intro has happened and they're in the Bowie that we recognize, even getting between that sort of intro to the Bowie we recognize is beautifully done. It's like mm-hmm. every, every transition is so weirdly, amazingly, interesting and, and intricate. It's just amazingly wonderful. This jam, you'd never get, you'll never get used to this jam. You'll never get tired of listening to this ever. Every time I listen to it, I hear something new. I listened yeah. to it yesterday and today. Yesterday, <laughs> I thought I heard influences of Bush, the band, the Gavin Rossdale, like Brit, Brit rock band. And today I thought I heard just like shine on you crazy diamond somewhere in there. You know, it, you're right. You never get used to it. And once the jam itself begins after the composed section ends, I thought it begins as many really great Bowies do, especially from the era with very scattered playing. Like they've bring it all the way down to, if not 0.5. And so there's like tentative notes from page near silence at some points. And this is where the first thought I had about Fishman playing such a quick tempo so quietly jumped in. Right. Yep. And right after that moment, 
Brian, I think right around nine minutes in my notes, I wrote, Jam taunts the evil spirits. <laughs> your your then, notes sound like mine. <laughs> and then at 11 minutes, I say, fully embracing the dark side. So they're hinting at what's to come. Yeah, I yeah, exactly. At the same exact point, I wrote at 11 minutes and 15 seconds. Normally, when I think 1994 fish, I think of machine gun tray killing down with disease, but they were really experimental. And this might be their weirdest era ever. Uh, I wrote cacophony. This is sick stuff. <laughs> and we're over 10 minutes in and no melody has developed yet. <laughs> I do feel like they were like sending out, you know, notes and trying to discern, like, are there, uh, you know, what kind of spirits are in the room or something like that. And they finally kind of get their answer. <laughs> yeah. And they're weird. They're freaking weird. <laughs> the spirits and the band and probably the fans too. <laughs> I, at, at 1250. I have a note for you. Uh, oh, good. And, I have one too. Let's hear uh, it. Okay. The note is, can they blast their way out of the dungeon they've built? <laughs> dungeon i wrote godzilla oh cool i heard it's like these stomping melodies oh, yeah. that big stomping rhythm that i think mike starts and kind of what you said earlier he does it once and he does it on his own like he almost interjects and then they go through another bar and then the whole band is right on it it's like they knew it was coming once right they on. heard it they yep. turn on a dime yep and then that evolves to me into at thirteen thirty, what i call the staccato simon says jam I called it a synth classical rhythm game. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> 
observation is that it's clear that so much practice has been put into this type of observation around the 1350 or 1330 mark. It really seems like those hay improvisation exercises that oh, we yeah. talk about so much. It, it's really made real. Definitely. And it it seems like it's so well practiced, but it's not um it's not necessarily precise. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's on the razor's edge. They're yeah. pushing each other. They are. They are. And you're right. It's kind of going around in a circle and people are adding and taking things out. And it's it's like, had they not practiced that 3,000 times, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And very other, very few other bands could ever do that. And that's, that's the thing I was, that's the thing I'm talking about. And we just hear it and think, oh, cool. That's cool what they did. And yet, if you analyze it a little bit, you realize that's like freaking impossible what they did. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine, I remember, we weren't talking about this jam specifically, just fish improv in general. Someone said the craziest thing when you really stop and think about it is as fans, what we see in here is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't really know the thousands of hours that went into it before they just came on stage for the three hours or whatever it is that we get to hear. Making it look effortless is a result of a lot of practice. Right, right. That's what the great ones do, right? They make something look easy and it's freaking impossible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, About halfway through, around 15 minutes in, this is when I heard another band. I heard a Zeppelin riff, sort of, with big sustained power chords. (laughs) At 15 minutes, I wrote, they found the path, the golden path in the forest. And then I wrote, "Uh uh-oh, maybe not that safe, though. Big Zeppelin riff with sustained power chords and after 45 seconds dissipates back to Bowie. <laughs> and and at this point, it seemed like they're indulging every musical impulse they have. Like yeah. the whole the whole world is a musical playground for them. And Bowie is just the outlet for their creativity. The song, in a way, is irrelevant at this point. It's just yeah. they, the monkey bars are David Bowie. And they're a little kid who just had a huge high C and pixie sticks running around playing with all the toys. <laughs> uh, all the way up to about 20 minutes. Um, yep. th- there's, I, I have just a couple scribbles. Band is sticking some heavy metal landings here. Um, I wrote Black Sabbath into fish, into Zeppelin, into fish, uh, into structured madness. And yeah, then, controlled chaos is what yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, and then at 20 is when Paige brings us back into today. The world is okay and kind of like Harry Hood. <laughs> <laughs> 
McGruff. That's section that sounds a lot like McGruff. That page is playing just with a really frantic, uh, like a fr- quasi frantic rhythm. I use the word quasi a lot with fish because nothing is ever completely one way or the other. Correct. Do you remember? I know that this was many years ago. Uh, do you remember what it was like in the crowd or in the room at this time? The you know, I just have to say it might not have been specifically this night, but okay, looking around. And I back then I was on the floor and up front, looking around, just everyone so locked in, just locked, just looking at Trey. You know what I mean? Just incredibly locked into whatever the band's doing. So I I really think that, you know, at least the group around me, we were all listening intently. We were like blown away by how good the music was coming off that stage. Yeah, I am too. And I'm not there. I'm on my couch uh, <laughs> decades later and I'm blown away and locked in by what I hear. Uh, a couple of minutes later, around the 23 minute mark, I'm almost certain without looking that you have notes for somewhere between 23 and 25 minutes. <laughs> I'll uh, tell you, I do. I have 23. Do you want to hear mine or you? Yeah, first? No, you go first and then I'll okay. tell you what I wrote down. 23 minutes. By now, simply one of the best and most beautiful melody jams, full band locked in, stunning. And then I wrote, uh, RJ told me, because I remember it about this particular jam, RJ told me this is one of the only times when this jam ends around 26 or something, the only times that Fish takes a bow in the middle of the song because the applause was so high.
didn't know that. That's a nice detail. That's cool. That's why I have people come on to talk about their favorite songs. Because that's the fill-in. That's the good stuff. It's it's um, a beautiful jam, and yet there's a better one coming. Yeah, yeah. My my notes Still. here. It's it's incredible how how closely related our opinions are. I wrote this is some of the most powerful, sublime music I've ever heard Fish play. <laughs> Uh, it's very straightforward, powerful, and melodic compared to the first 15 minutes. This is the good stuff. This is what I paid to see. Yeah. Epic soaring guitar from Trey. Straight but still impressive rhythm from Mike and Fish. And Paige is effortless, effortlessly dancing on top, putting icing on the cake. We could probably do a full episode on these two minutes. It's like the pinnacle of organic Fish jams. It's It's so good. It's you know, so, I like to so think good. that every show there's a, an opportunity for me to say, this is why I keep coming back. And this whole jam is a great example of that. But these two minutes is lightning in a bottle for sure. Yeah. Yep. And then and then the descent back into insanity. Yeah, yeah the Lassie section. <laughs> I think people know about Lassie, but basically they first start by whistling and there's like Paige has found some sort of horror type chords that sort of go off into reverb into the distance, almost like some, you know, insane person across 10 fields is playing church organ in a haunted church or something. And uh, on top of it, they're whistling like, Mm -hmm. and I can just imagine if your head was on, if you were on something that you would actually be scared for this. And then it gets scarier and scarier. I I was a little creeped out, and I've heard this about twenty <laughs> times already. Uh, my, most of my notes say they are a weird band. Like that's that's kind of the beginning and end of it. Uh, and this is where I had the comparison to Shine on You Crazy Diamond. Where is it fair instead of calling all of this David Bowie? To um, you know how Shine on You Crazy Diamond has the uh, like the numerals next to it on the record where it has different portions. That's what it kind of reminds me of. <laughs> I think. I think Pink Pink Floyd, there was more intention, whereas this sort of came came about organically. But yes, I agree. You could name these parts. Yeah. Um, I wrote, if I were there at this point, I would probably need to step out for some air. <laughs> so so what what uh you should play now is the lassie part. Thank you. 
because so the whistling becomes all of a sudden they're whistling for a dog and then Trey starts saying, hey, Lassie, hey, boy, not knowing that Lassie was a girl. Right. Like, go, you know, what'd you say, Lassie? And and all and then they start saying they they all start sort of almost cursing at the audience under their breath, like some bad demonic speaking or or satanic speaking whispers like the demons are here. Very evil stuff happening. And that turns into do it now. wondering if this is the son of sam part because they were just talking about a dog right lassie and yeah. then uh david berkowitz famously or infamously said how he got his instructions to kill from a dog uh, so i'm wondering if the do it now is like if was that floating around because regardless that's how i'm taking it that's how i'm interpreting it it's 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 just it's scary and you don't really know what you have to do now but you got to do something <laughs> <laughs> and so fish eventually said, okay, got to get some water. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Some people, I think time to leave. Or if you're, or if you're fishman, you finally just hit the hi hat and, and, and start the bow jam again. It's that unbelievable. It's, it's it's a stunning. Uh, I had to listen to it again and again and again and again. How they come out of that? It's unbelievable. And not only that, that the transition is flawless, but they nail it as if they never had a jam in the middle of it at all, as if right. they were just practicing it. Right. Oh, here we <sighs> here we here we are in this part that we played, you know, fifty million times already. It was just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. What a ride. Yeah. Really, really great jam. 
All right. So, Tom, thank you so much. We were able to talk about Osiris Media. We were able to talk about Under the Scales. We were able to talk about 1994, David Bowie, a lot. And I just wanted to ask before we sign off, where can people find Osiris Media? Where should they keep their eyes out for it? Uh, Any exciting stuff coming up? You have the floor. Twitter, you should follow us at at OsirisPod. And then we're also... We have a website, OsirisPod.com. Uh, the website just got revamped. It's beautiful. You can see all our podcasts along the top. It's one of those sliding things with the podcast icons. Check that out. And there's a news portion on that on that page. You can sign up for our newsletter on there. And I recommend you do that weekly. We tell about the highlights of stuff coming out. So that would be my, that's the sort of the trifecta is uh, follow us on Twitter at OsirisPod. Go to OsirisPod.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, Tom Marshall, one more time. Thank you so much for being on Attendance Bias. Brian, it was very nice of you to uh, talk about all this stuff that I love talking about. (laughs) I do too. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Tom Marshall for joining me today and being so gracious with his time. I'd like to thank Fish.net for everything they do always, and Fish.in, Fishin, for the recording used in today's clips. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app of choice. Also, you can find Attendance Bias on Twitter and Instagram. If you do, reach out and contact me for a free sticker. I'm happy to send them out. Any way you can, spread the word of Attendance Bias. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week.